You are listening to an ODI live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org. Okay, good afternoon, everyone. Um, I'm Sara Pantuliano, I'm Managing Director here at ODI, and I'm really delighted to welcome you all, both in the room and online, to this afternoon's discussion. Next week is Refugee Week, uh, and we felt that, you know, on the eve of Refugee Week, we really ought to reflect a bit more on how we collectively do or do not support refugees' own aspirations. You know, very often we tend to look at refugees as, you know, passive recipients of aid without recognizing the entrepreneurship, the activities, the, you know, the work that they, each of them does you know, to really pursue their own aspirations and objectives. Um, so we've recently, I think it was three, four weeks ago, hosted a debate on employment, jobs for refugees. And we wanted to carry on that conversation here to the eye, particularly because a number of my colleagues have been doing research on uh, how refugees really do pursue their own objectives and aspirations using their own resources, assets, networks. And we wanted to have the opportunity to reflect on the findings of this research. This is research that Veronique, who is here on the panel today, has carried out with other colleagues in the Central African Republic um, and Cameroon, in Malaysia, uh, with the refugees from Myanmar, and in uh, Jordan, Turkey, and Lebanon with refugees from Syria. So we'll reflect on that. But Together with Veronique on this panel, I've got some fantastic colleagues to help us think through you know, these issues. I'll introduce them in a second, but before that, I wanted to also welcome our online audience, which is very numerous today. Um, you will have an opportunity to interact with us. You can put your questions and your comments through the chat. I'll take them um, once we've had the first conversation on the panel um, in the Q&A. Um, but for those who are in the room, Please put your phones on silent. You're very welcome to tweet. In fact, we encourage you to tweet. The hashtag is Refugee Lives. Um, but please you know, make sure that your phone doesn't interrupt the conversation. Um, Aline, let, let me come to the panel. So I, I did mention Veronique. Veronique, is a uh, uh, Veronique Barbelet is a research fellow in the Humanitarian Policy Group here to the eye. She has a background as a political scientist. And you know she's been doing a lot of research on displacement issues, as well as a number of um, other issues related to conflict and security, protection, livelihoods, and gender-based violence. Um, she led the work in the Central African Republic, and she's done research um, in other contexts in West Africa, Central Africa, and Sudan and South Sudan. Over um, the pond from New York, we have Lorna Solis, who could not be with us in London, but Hi. I'm delighted that she can join us um, via video link. Lorna is the founder and the CEO of Blue Rose Compass, which is a really interesting nonprofit organization. And Lorna will tell us more about what she does, but you know her work is very much focused through Blue Rose Compass in on helping young refugees develop you know their talents pursue educational opportunities find a way um, to study you know beyond the areas in which they are um, displaced um, Lorna is also the founder of link which is a corporation that empowers you know young refugees to find employment so that they can release the host communities but she actually has a background in as an in, in, uh, institutional investor you wouldn't know that but she's got a business um, background worked in Wall Street and uh, then decided to put her talents 
violence to better use and you know, to support refugees. She is a member of the Council on Foreign uh, Relations, a young global leader for the World Economic Forum, and a fellow member of the Global Future Council on the Future of the Humanitarian System. To my right, I'm really delighted to welcome Ziad Ayubi, who is the head of the Livelihoods Unit at UNHCR. Um, Ziad has been working on local economic development for almost 20 years, but UNHCR has really been you know, trying to manage economic programs targeting refugees and leading you know, the whole global reform of livelihoods programming for UNHCR. Um, he's overseeing the rollout of the global strategy for livelihoods um, from 2014 to 2018. I'm sure we'll hear a lot more about it. And then last but not least, to my left, Tamam Maludat, who is the Deputy Medical Director uh, at Médecins Sans Frontières uh, Switzerland. Pleasure to have you here, Tamam. Uh, Tamam is a Syrian medical doctor. He's a public health expert. He's a veteran of the humanitarian sector. He's worked in all sorts of different settings with the Red Cross, Red Crescent Movement, Save the Children, and with MSF. And you know, his expertise is on medical humanitarian ethics, um, conflict, humanitarian assistance, non-communicable diseases, and mental health in emergencies. Um, you studied medicine at the University of Damascus, but then came to London to do his public health in developing countries degree at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. So a great panel to discuss how we can better support refugees' aspirations, a lot of you know, direct expertise from the ground. Um, let me start with Veronique. Vero, you've been spending the last couple of years really trying to understand better how to... Um, to figure out what refugees do, you know, when they're in a crisis, what kind of, you know, avenues they pursue to really meet what are their own objectives. What are the key findings? What are the key things that really struck you in this research? Thank you, Sarah. Um, so first, I'd like to, um, um, show, to um, pay attention to this um, report that we just put on your chair. This is the executive summary of a forthcoming um, report that we're putting together at the moment. And this is bringing together all the research work that we've been doing over the last two years um, with Rohingya refugees in Malaysia, Central African refugees in Cameroon, and Syrian refugees in Turkey and Jordan. Um, and so today I'd like to highlight some of those key findings with you. Of course, not all of them, um, but look out for the forthcoming report, which should be out in a few weeks' time. Um, so when we started this research, we were really looking at um, we were thinking that one of the reasons why the lives and livelihoods of refugees was not better supported by aid agencies um, and their perspective integrating was from a lack of understanding, a lack of understanding of refugees' own agencies, so what refugees do themselves, um, how they, um, you know, what kind of aspirations and objectives they have, um, and the obstacles that they are facing. And also we wanted to look at um, whether there was a lack of understanding and, and what refugees, uh, how refugees um, relied on more ad hoc informal networks in their surroundings. So that's family, friends, um, and also individuals in the host community. Interestingly, what we found is that there's not so much a lack of understanding of what refugees do or a lack of understanding of these informal networks and where support um, lies for refugees in displacement, including the more informal ad hoc support. But really, there was a lack of integrating this knowledge and this understanding in what agencies were doing and the way they were intervening. So I'd like to point out to some of the issues that, that, that we found. 
first, um, we found that the perception of refugees and the perspective of refugees continues to be gathered, but in a very ad hoc manner, and often post-intervention and post-policy change by aid agencies. And what that means is very a lot of interventions, therefore, assume rather than know what or assume the impact of the interventions on the lives and livelihoods of refugees. Um, one um, example that we came across was the work permit schemes in Turkey and Jordan, and that was quite interesting to look at how refugees were reacting to what was felt from the you know, aid community as being a very significant uh, positive step towards helping refugees and their livelihoods and fulfilling their aspirations. Interestingly, what we found is that refugees felt that um, this step, which was quite sudden, um, was actually bringing more uncertainty, uncertainty to their lives. Um, and the fast policy change was um, increasing that feeling of uncertainty that many refugees um, face. It also increased the lack of trust in the national policy framework and the lack of trust that these um, policies were going to continue being positive for refugees themselves. Um, most refugees felt that these work permits were not applying to their own um, individual circumstances, either because the sectors that the work permits were applying to were close to, uh, that um, the, the, the work permits were applying to were not where refugees wanted to work or were already working, but also um, the data that refugee employers would actually agree to go and apply for work permits. And this example is very interesting for us because what it highlighted is that often in trying to support refugee lives and livelihoods, we forgot um, some of those more subtle psychological uh, elements of what drives um, refugee choices and refugee strategies. Um, and we found that things like uncertainty, feeling stuck, feeling in limbo were very critical aspects of the way that refugees were making decisions about their lives and their livelihoods in displacement. Um, we also found that um, livelihoods continues to be very sidelined or an afterthought in responding to uh, a movement of refugees. And that was quite interesting because talking to different um, humanitarians on the ground, um, there was a feeling that there was still this assumption that newly arrived refugees were necessarily vulnerable and that with time, refugees were becoming less vulnerable. And actually, when we talked to refugees, we felt that the story was quite different. Um, it does not say that, you know, especially um, in Cameroon, some of the Central Africans that arrived in Cameroon, um, the first few weeks or days were needing life-saving um, assistance. Um, but many um, came with assets, financial assets, social capital, human capital, financial capital. Um, and these assets were actually depleting over time. So when livelihood interventions were finally on the table for a lot of aid agencies, those refugees no longer had their own assets and had really struggled. And that does not mean that refugees cannot do it themselves and necessarily need support. But what we found is many refugees have these assets, um, and they are often faced with obstacles that require external interventions. Um, but you know, they still have their own agencies, and they still do a, a lot. Um, and finally, um, one of the things that continues to be challenging in um, in su better supporting refugee lives and livelihoods and understanding their aspirations is that a lot of interventions and livelihood interventions continue to be supply-driven. And by that, I mean they supply skills, they supply jobs, rather than trying to understand what refugees are doing themselves and trying to remove the obstacles that refugees themselves are facing. Um, and I think in this supply-driven model, unfortunately, we'll continue to miss um, on, on integrating the perspective of refugees and therefore not truly support their aspirations and support the kind of actions and the agencies and what they already put in place. Thanks, Veronica. Really interesting. I mean, in my career, the things that whenever I've worked in refugee settings always comes up as the you know the top priority, especially 
um, after the first you know, five, six months of uh, um, displacement is, is jobs and education, wherever you are, so it's jobs and education. And education in the future of their children is almost invariably the thing that you know, refugees focus on and drives a lot of their choices. So I, I want to come to you, Lorna, because that's what you've been trying to do, really, you know, support the aspiration that refugees have for their children and obviously, you know, the aspirations of refugee young people themselves. Can you tell us a little bit about your experience in, in really guiding them um, to some far-fetched places, really, from where they've ended up in many cases? Sure, sure. And thank you, Sarah, for organizing this. This is wonderful and a great panel. And I'm sorry I'm not there. Um, so, and actually, just following up from what Veronique just said, something else to add about the work permits is what, what I've heard from the refugees we've spoken to, especially in Jordan, is that there's an uncertainty if they will lose their aid if they take the work permit. So there's still some ambiguity and some concern from refugees. If I take this work permit, do I lose the aid for myself and my family? And because it's not 100% in black and white and the governments haven't been 100% clear on this, there's also that uncertainty and that fear that I'll drop out from the aid part if I take this job. Because also we know these jobs are not, as you just said, the jobs that they really want to take sometimes. It's what they're just being given. I'm an engineer now, I have to go do you know, uh, farming. I mean, whatever. So sorry, I'm supposed to talk about education, but I just wanted to follow up on that one piece because we're, we're part of that too. Um, but that, 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 and that goes hand in hand with the, the education piece. So again, there is, um, uh, if you look at what the majority of the big humanitarian agencies provide, it's um, shelter, it's safety, it's food, it's basic needs, and education really does take a back seat. Um, primary and secondary education, for the most part, I would say, is available. Um, I don't, the quality of teachers may not be spectacular sometimes, depending on the country, the camp, et cetera, and everyone's doing their best, and trust me, I know that. Um, there's not enough funding for the, for the big humanitarian agencies doing a lot of the work, and therefore, this just falls through the cracks. What we, what we do is we look for brilliant kids and we take them to the best universities outside of what I call the bubble. Why it's important for us, and many others take them to universities uh, in the host countries, and that's fine. And trust me, there are enough refugees where we need everyone to jump on board and help in whatever way they can. But what we do is we focus on these brilliant kids and we take them to top universities. The first kid I took out of a camp was from Dadaab refugee camp. As we all know, largest refugee camp in the world. Well, maybe not much longer because they were closing down the camp, but this was half a million people when I started working in Dadaab almost 10 years ago and found the first kid we took to Princeton. Well, I took to Princeton. I was still working in my full-time investment career when I started this on the side and then it became something full-time. Um, and Abbas uh, went to Princeton and finished with a 3.5 GPA. Then I sent him to an MBA at the European Business School in Germany. He works at JP Morgan. This kid, if it had not been for our intervention, would still be in the dub with absolutely no future. He is the number two in the risk department at JP Morgan. The boss leaves, he's the boss. I mean, these are the kids we look for. And like him, we have a ton of Abbas's. So after the Syrian crisis hit, we started, of course, looking at more Middle East. We had started in the Middle East in Lebanon and Gaza with Palestinians, who, by, by, and, and of course, we all know they've sort of they've sort of fallen through the cracks as well, because now the focus primarily is on Syrians. We can't forget our Palestinians. Um, so we have our Palestinian students, and then we have our, um, of course, Syrians now, primarily, and we still, of course, work with Africa. 
But um, I'll give you one story of why it's so critical, I feel, to take them out of the bubble. There was this kid, Samir, a uh, Palestinian living in Lebanon. Angry young man, very angry, just from what he sees as injustice and whatever. I mean, he, he was in this bubble and all he hears is what's around him. We took him, I sent him to Dubai to university and his teachers um, from UNRWA, who were very close to, were, and we worked very closely with UNHCR, UNRWA, of course, all the top uh, uh, UN organizations working on the ground. Um, they said, this kid is in that critical, critical period that if an opportunity does not come for him, he could go join a bad, dark side. And that's that, that's that critical age where we have to intervene if we want to bring peace into this world, we have to give these young kids an opportunity and alternatives to do things for their lives and do things for themselves. So we sent him to Dubai. He prospered in school. He now works at MasterCard. And even at MasterCard, I mean, so after being at university for just a couple months, he said to me, Miss Lorna, yeah, they call me Miss Lorna. I feel like I'm a teacher. I was never a teacher. But Miss um, Lorna, you know, I thought Palestinians were the most hated people on earth. I thought everyone just had it in for us. Of course, he's in this bubble in Lebanon, entire, where that's all he hears. He said his roommates were from India, China, and Nigeria. He would say, I'm up till three in the morning talking to my roommates, and I'm learning so much from them. And my God, do they have it bad in India. And wow, China and Nigeria. And he said, I no longer see myself as a victim. I now understand the plights in other parts of the world. And he, on his own, stopped being a victim and stopped seeing Palestinians and himself as that rhetoric where he that he was he was in that bubble. So for me, taking them out, extracting them from that, giving them opportunities, alone they start forming a new understanding of what refugees and themselves look like in the world. And I think that's critical. But it's giving them opportunities, and that, at the end of the day, that's what we all want is having our children have the same opportunities everyone else has. We want inclusion, and we want uh, a chance to thrive and self-sustain. And so that's what Blue Rose Compass does primarily. And we have boys and girls. It's extremely hard to get a lot of the more conservative girls out, and we have to have a lot of conversations with, with families um, and make sure that you know the girls are going to be safe. And we do that. We go that extra mile. One, one last thing, and then I'll, I'll stop. Um, you know, at UPenn, there's a professor, Angela Duckworth, and she's come up with this whole concept of grit. And grit comes from individuals who have been through extraordinary situations who bring a whole different perspective because of, the, because of what they've experienced in their lives. And I can tell you something. Our students thrive in any of the Fortune 500 companies we put them in. Either the first ones in, the last ones out, the first ones to volunteer. They're first of all, they're so grateful for the opportunity they have. They show up. They work hard. They're an asset. These are they're not burdens. These are assets. And any company that has them continues to thank us and continues to hire our graduates. They fight for them. Actually, we have to like negotiate with the different companies because they they fight for our graduates every year. Um, so I wish more people understood that refugees, absolutely not a burden. They're like everyone else. They're like you and I. Actually, I was a refugee, so absolutely like me. <laughs> I fled Nicaragua when I was nine. I was a refugee in the US. I had opportunities. That's the only difference between me and people that are stuck in situations that they can't get out of. I'll stop there because I know we have a longer conversation to go. 
Thanks, Lorna. Um, let me come to Ziad. I mean, you know, what Lorna presents is a different way of engaging with uh, uh, what we would call in the aid sector the refugee caseload. But UNHCR has come a long way to try and understand in what ways you can support, you know, their aspirations differently. You know, as head of the Lovelace Unit, you've been looking at different, more innovative way to engage with them. What are the key takeaways? What are you really trying to do differently? Where it works, where it doesn't? Thank you very much uh, for, for, for this opportunity to meet uh, the, the audience. And let me start by going back to the initial question, what do they want? What refugees want and what's their need? From what we see on the ground, from our experience, from our interaction with refugees, uh, refugees always want a solution. So this is where we should start. And the perception that refugees want to take advantage of the asylum uh, system and stick to wherever they arrive uh, uh, needs to be uh, uh, critically uh, discussed. Because the, what, what we saw and what we still see uh, in different caseloads, in different refugee populations, the first answer for a refugee when you ask them, what do you want now, is a solution. We want primarily to go back home. Uh, so the, the first solution is actually political, to achieve return. However, we all know that this is not available, and it's, uh, it's, it's very uh, uh, tricky to, to, to wait until a solution is achieved <coughs> And the return solution is, is one of the, of the rare solutions in the world. Most of the refugees cannot achieve uh, a return uh, because of the, of the uh, political situation, cannot achieve uh, full integration in where they are, they are uh, living. So what they need, actually, in this non-functioning uh, situation, they need dignity and they need protection. The protection uh, uh, has different aspects. It has the legal, the physical uh, aspect. Uh, there is an assistance uh, side of the protection also. So refugees need assistance. So when we discuss the, the, the question of dignity, we should not sideline the assistance and consider that refugees should be directly become self-reliant. Because when, when, when they face the shock of displacement, there is a need for assistance at some point. However, the question that the world now is trying to face is, how can we phase out of assistance and achieve dignity and achieve self-reliance for refugees? To answer this question, and refugees want self-reliance. They want dignity also. So also, this should be our starting point. When you ask a refugee also, what do you want? OK, if I am, I am stuck in a place, I can't go back home at least give me an opportunity. And Lorna described this in a very passionate way. The people need an opportunity to prove that they can be become uh, productive or become productive after, after a, a period of inactivity due to, the, to the, due to the displacement. Most of the refugees were, maybe all of the refugees, were active in their countries. They were working, they were making money, they were earning their, their, their livelihoods. So when they face displacement, displacement, there is a situation of inactivity due to the displacement. It could be one month, but it could be also years due to the system. So to achieve dignity, to achieve self-reliance, what we want now is a different way of doing the business that we used to do. Uh, UNHCR and I think all the international community now uh, acknowledge that there is, there is a need uh, to do uh, the business differently. The old model that we used to apply 
which is UNHCR is the fully responsible agency for the refugees in the world, is not functioning anymore. And this is where there is a need to do business differently. UNHCR acknowledged that, and the international community and the General Assembly of the UN acknowledged that. This is where uh, there is now the, the, the literature around the Comprehensive Refugee Response Framework and the Global Compact of 2018 for refugees and another Global Compact for migrants. So what, what's required now in order to make the comprehensive refugee response framework and the global compact to make them a little bit more concrete because we know that this is liter literature so far. There is li literature, there is a, a general assembly uh, uh, decision, the New York declaration that happened in, in 2016, uh, November 2016 also called for a global uh, compact. From now until we have the global compact, how, how are we moving towards uh, uh, refugee self-reliance? I think there is a major need now to create models to show that refugees could be part of development and should not be a humanitarian issue. Uh, it is a humanitarian issue by nature. It happened because of a crisis, and the first phase is to tackle it in a humanitarian point of view. However, with the current magnitude of the refugee situation, 65 million persons, uh, at least UNHCR, we work in around 170 places. So it's, it's everywhere. It's affecting the world. It's affecting uh, 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 mass of the world population, which means that it cannot remain a humanitarian issue. It should be a global development issue. And this is the start. This is how we can start tackling the problem. Once we agree on that, I think most of what Veronique mentioned in terms of uh, issues uh, that the research uh, showed uh, could be tackled, but in a different way. When we say that the lack of understanding uh, uh, of aid agencies, uh, of, of the refugees' needs, uh, is an issue, I, I fully agree on that. And actually, we should ask ourselves why aid agencies are doing livelihoods for refugees. When we say livelihoods, we talk about jobs, employment, economies, local economic development, value chains, and all these things. Why we are leaving these things, when it comes to refugees, we, we're leaving these things to humanitarian organizations to do it instead of development organizations to do it. So this is the big question that UNHCR is trying also to contribute to its answer. What we are doing in UNHCR is that we're doing a, a, an, an institutional change, a cultural change in the organization. Livelihoods, for us in the, in the global strategy now, livelihoods for refugees should be a development issue. So this is the starting point. Organizations who should be tackling uh, livelihoods for refugees should be the usual organizations doing economic development. So it's not UNHCR to start with. However, UNHCR is contributing to creating, as I said, models that function for refugees. Uh, one of them I can mention a lot. I don't want to take uh, all the time in mentioning what UNHCR is doing, but I can answer questions maybe later on. But for example, we've worked with ILO to take the value chain development approach that ILO has in the local economic development arena, uh, to adapt it and to tailor it to respond to local economic development needs where refugees are located. 
So the so this work is trying to answer the, the, the political question that we usually face. How can we integrate refugees in local economies where there is poverty and there is unemployment and there is a, an economic problem? The answer that we're trying to, to put with ILO is that why don't we plan for local economic development, taking into consideration the presence of a specific population and trying to identify which sectors could be uh, targeted in order to achieve added value for the local economy, but also achieve employment for the refugees and for the host community. This is, this is being put as a political question. However, the, the answer should be technical. It should be technical somehow because it's about sectors, value chains, economies, and so on. So this is one of the areas where we are trying to do something since 2013, and now it's part of our global uh, strategy. Uh, the question of poverty, uh, it's also it's common. Uh, poverty is, has the same features everywhere. And refugees also, refugee populations, should be classified somehow into the poverty scale. Looking at the refugee population from one poverty lens is also one of the weaknesses that we used to have in the humanitarian uh, work. Uh, we used to consider that everyone is poor in the refugee population, and this is not <coughs> correct. Uh, we should have a poverty scale as we have in any population. Maybe four grades, five, it depends. Maybe one poverty line, those who are pov under poverty line, above poverty line. So the issue of poverty analysis is an issue. This is where UNHCR also is trying to do some work on it. And we are using, in addition to the analysis, we're using also the graduation approach, which is a poverty alleviation approach uh, created by the World Bank. So we are working with those who implemented the graduation approach on non-refugee contexts. We are working with them in order to prove that this can work on refugee populations. We've already done uh, six countries uh, pilot. We are expanding this year. And actually, the achievement that we want to see, the outcome of what we are doing is not us scaling up the graduation approach to do uh, uh, poverty alleviation in the world for refugees. This is the old model. What we are trying to do is that more refugees should be integrated in poverty alleviation programs in host communities and host countries. And the first breakthrough that we saw uh, in this area uh, is uh, the World Bank uh, um, feasibility assessment for that in Lebanon, but also a, a, a bigger uh, program is what's happening in Uganda. The USAID, which is a development agency, it wasn't uh, part of the humanitarian uh, community. USAID does development usually, and USAID now is considering a $33 million program for uh, uh, poverty alleviation, uh, including refugees in Uganda. So this is the model that we want to see. Uh, uh, big scale programs instead of small initiatives uh, targeting refugees. The big scale programs need some evidence base. Uh, and this is where we are working also on building this evidence base to show that it is possible. And the scale up, the adoption should happen, needs to happen uh, later on. I have a lot, of, a lot of other examples where UNHCR is intervening, uh, but also that, that we need to tackle the issue of the relation between the assistance and the self-reliance. 
there is there is always a question around uh, if refugees want self-reliance and they want dignity, should we link uh, employment and jobs with the cut of assistance? This is leading to some problematic situations, as Veronique mentioned also, where where refugees sometimes uh, hesitate to sign up for, for employment if they know that this will lead to cut in assistance. And I think this is where there is, there is a lack of understanding, not only in the humanitarian community, but also at the government uh, le level, uh, of how should we tackle the relation between so social welfare and social protection and employment. And I don't think this is a problem in the refugee population only. I think this is a problem everywhere. It's a global problem. And linking this problem to the refugee population is unfair mm -hmm. because uh, poor people in all the world is facing this problem and governments in all uh, welfare states are facing this question and this problem. So now bringing, bringing back this question to, re to the refugee population will show uh, will, will give a wrong impression that refugees don't want to work and refugees are depending and dependent from the assistance, which is not correct. So um, this is something that also I wanted to bring to the table to, to trigger some uh, discussion around it. I will stop here. I have... Uh, we'll come back to this. I think yes. you've hit on a couple of really, really critical issues for our conversations around you know, the trade-off between assistance of jobs and self-reliance. And, and this is you know, one of the, the critical challenges. So I'd, I'd like to hear uh, what the rest of the panel thinks about it. And, and you know, this sh also progressive shift in the aid sector towards long-term development in refugee settings. I think those are two things I'd really like the panel to comment on. But before we open the discussion on that, I just want to ask Tamam um, to really reflect, you know, uh, uh, Ziad has been talking about the changes you know, in the refugee landscape and how we're becoming progressively awareness of the reality of the refugees and how this has been shifting. The health sector is a particular one where, you know, I think for, for MSF in the Syria crisis, has been a, a bit of an awakening around the kind of aspirations that refugees had in terms of their health needs. Can you tell us a bit about that and the journey that the organization has gone through in responding to you know, these aspirations? Thank you. Thank you, Sarah, for, for having me. Um, to start with a disclaimer, um, I was telling my sister that I'm in a panel on what refugee, refugees want. And she looked at me half jokingly or half more seriously than jokingly and said, half a million refugees in this country and they ask you. So fully acknowledging my disability in terms of reflecting what people actually need or want, what I would talk about is the pure humanitarian assistance, the emergency assistance that we provide in MSF and many other agencies do. We have been providing assistance to new situations with all the information. We've been dealing with refugees as we dealt with the uh, factors that governed refugee situations 20 years ago. So in essence, we have assumed that refugees are uh, always displaced into a camp as the 90s have seen. We have uh, assumed that uh, they have massive physical needs, massive health needs. Most of the large refugee uh, settlements, like in Dadaabu that was mentioned, in Congo, in uh, Uganda and others, have been ones of uh, convenience for the humanitarian aid system. Because you have a, a fence, you have a population you can count, you can set up a, a hospital and be done with it. 
and if you have enough time to provide the critical medical aid, then you're good. If you don't, you don't. What we have, uh, we have even canned it. If you, if you know of MSF's uh, somewhat known uh, book called Refugee Health from 1997, we have said at the time there are 10 priorities. If you fulfill them, you're good. And they should apply to every situation, wherever. Uh, obviously, that isn't the case. I don't think it has all, any time been the case. Uh, today, in addition to the numbers, the sheer numbers that, uh, that uh, Ziad have mentioned, uh, most refugees are not in camps. They are in, in open settings with host communities. They, uh, they live like other people. Uh, in, in circumstances that range from extreme poverty to situations that are uh, l less, uh, less poverty-ridden or, uh, or causing of uh, se the severe physical uh, uh, need they have, whether medical or otherwise. Um, so when an aid agency uh, uh, goes and, and assumes that we are going to set up a hospital, treat malaria, and we find that we are having actually displaced populations. And, and this is another point that isn't probably to be discussed here. But uh, this forced displacement is probably a wider umbrella that shouldn't be ignored, because we have evidence that internally displaced people are twice as likely to die uh, than refugees. But, but that's beside the point. We are, we're seeing people who come from middle-income countries. Uh, the Syrian refugees in Lebanon, for example, where, where we treat them, we have been treating them for, for several years, uh, are uh, suffering from long-term diseases, from non-communicable diseases that aren't malaria that can be treated in three days, and then everybody can go home. Um, we assumed, what we assumed is that we do it like everything else. So we set up a primary health care structure that should treat non-communicable diseases as it treats anything else. Uh, that has failed spectacularly, because uh, what we have failed to acknowledge is that uh, uh, Syrian, um, uh, Syrians in Lebanon uh, had a, a come from a medical culture that is very different to uh, other populations we have dealt with. Uh, and, and that difference is wide enough that we couldn't ignore those variations anymore. So instead of uh, trying to simplify the treatment, uh, we have hit a condition where people actually want to know what's wrong with them, would like to know why are we prescribing the treatment, why did they have a regime of treatment that seemed complicated with many pills, and we are giving them a simpler one that seems less uh, uh, sophisticated than what they are used to. And, and the explanation of that required that we actually moved from primary healthcare setting to a non-communicable disease setting, whereby we have created a counseling part, whereby someone sits <coughs> with the patient and explains exactly the treatment. You'd think that's common sense. You'd expect that from your physician here in, in the UK. Uh, we, it didn't hit us, because we have been treating refugees in severely low-resource settings. Now, that is interesting that we could deal with that, but that is a cause of reflection, because now I couldn't justify to myself to go back to South Sudan and think, well, I have to explain to the Syrian because they require the explanation, but I don't have to explain to the South Sudanese because they don't. It, the, the, uh, the moral reflection that one gives us implies itself to the other. Uh, they, then, then what are the needs? Short term, obviously, people who are displaced need to be safe. 
uh, as far as we can assess they need medical treatment, whether their treatment is interrupted or when they are afflicted with a new disease. Um, I, I, I assume they need uh, to know what's going to happen to them. Uh, mid to long term, uh, I have no idea. We are an aid agency. But uh, what, what hit me is I, I have to, to uh, paraphrase uh, um, Paulo Freire, and sorry for Portuguese speakers, I, I probably am pronouncing it wrong, is he, he's talking about education. And, and, and I think it feels the same here. It's, we, should, we should probably start, rather than the dichotomy of aid and development, start by moving from a humanitarian to a humanist approach, move from dealing with refugees as objects to subjects, objects as ones that are known and acted upon, to subjects that actually know and act. Uh, and then they probably be able to tell us. Some of it can be achieved in a humanitarian context. We can actually adapt ourselves from setting up a template service, whether that is a medical service, uh, to setting up a, a flexible one. We have had uh, slogans in the humanitarian system for very long that need to be adapted. Those include um, beneficiary feedback. Uh, beneficiary feedback has meant for the longest time that you go and sit with the community leaders. Usually, in my most vivid memory, those are in uh, Ethiopia and Somalia, older men with big beards that are, you know, community leaders. And they'll tell you what you want, they want, and you'll try to squeeze as much of it as you can uh, in, in your program. Uh, well, that doesn't work anymore. That doesn't work because we are seeing that there are groups of people who cannot uh, uh, speak out uh, unless we conscientiously allow that opportunity. We have realized uh, by having medical services that sexual violence is prolific in almost every refugee setting. So we can that as well and create sexual gender-based violence services everywhere. Uh, ignoring that this is not the only problem. You know, so a woman who hasn't, I'm sorry to say that, who hasn't been uh, attacked or, or, or uh, subject to sexual violence is completely fine. She's as well as any man in the community. Well, they, they probably aren't. And asking the questions without having every service put in a template is probably a very good step towards moving from, from a, a, a refugee or, or any person we serve as an object to as a subject that actually makes part of the decision. It's not easy. We are programmed in the humanitarian sector to, to find solutions, uh, create a template, and just spread it as far as we can, because there is a, an, an illusion of, of urgency. The urgency exists definitely in many cases, but the urgency changes. Uh, Dadaab, which was mentioned by Lorna, has been there for quite a long time. So have been many of the refugee settings. And they would have allowed us to adapt our services to people we are trying to, uh, to provide that service to uh, in a way that suits them. This is a conversation that is still very shy in the humanitarian sector. Our development colleagues probably are much more versed into it. But I think we are unable to continue providing humanitarian aid effectively and in a satisfactory manner without actually addressing those questions quite closely, adapting them, and changing probably our culture as, as the circumstances change around us.
Thank you very much, Tomama. That's really, really powerful. And you know, it, it poses the question of whether it is the question is around shifting from a humanitarian to a development model, or actually rethinking these models altogether. Because I think what you say about the illusion of urgency in humanitarian settings is very powerful. That doesn't necessarily mean that the solution is long-term development per se, but it's more a combination, if you want, of the various tools that we have you know, in, in the toolbox to be able to really you know, engage with refugees, as you say, as subjects who know and act. And that, Veronique, is very much at the heart of a lot of things that come out of the research. Yes. Um, it'd be useful to hear about some of the things that have actually worked better, you know, those who have perhaps been able to you know, uh, cut across some of these you know, binary divisions that haven't really you know, enabled um, assistance to be centered on what you know, people wanted and could really um, pursue themselves. Well, it's very interesting, and I think I'd like to go back a little bit to what, what Ziad was saying, um, that, you know, refugees at first need assistance, you need to phase out to go to self-reliance, and after a period of inactivity, they can become active again. Um, I just take the example of, of the work I did in Cameroon, and um, I spent quite a lot of time doing interviews with Okay, just 160 refugees, but we really try to gather um, in depth their life history. So trying to understand what happened from the moment of displacement to where they were. So some of those refugees had been displaced for a year and a half, and some of them for 10 years. And I think what was really um, striking, and again going back to, to, to this idea of, of phasing um, the way you respond to, to refugees and you support themselves them in, in displacement, was that we didn't see um, any of these stories. We didn't see assistance first and then phasing to self-reliance. What we saw is refugees having very different uh, livelihood trajectories. So some refugees came and were completely traumatized, unable to do anything, and needed to be taken care of. Many came and said, okay, well, I have this money. I know so-and-so in this village. I'm going to move there. Um, so-and-so used to trade with me, so maybe I can do business with them. Um, and that's people who, on the first month of arrival, are able to be active. So I don't think there's such a thing as looking at a phasing of of what refugee, um, you know, needing assistance and then livelihoods. And it was quite interesting speaking to one humanitarian worker there who said, um, you know, we assumed that some refugees would be fine for the first year. And actually, that was, that was quite um, a good understanding because those refugees who self-settled in the host communities, those Central Africans who self-settled in the host communities in Cameroon, were actually really fine for the first nine months to, to, to a year. And one of the reasons why, they, again, they came with assets. So they, were not, they had some financial assets. Um, they were able to use and, and uh, get support from pre-existing networks. So these were either um, family that had moved from a previous refugee movement to Cameroon or um, friends that they had made. Also, you know, Central Africa and Cameroon are very close. Some of them had in-laws, Cameroonian in-laws um, in East Cameroon, as well as, you know, trading partners. Um, and we saw that for many, immediately after their arrival, they were able to use those assets and use those, those networks to sustain themselves. Um, but also what's interesting in this idea of, you know, refugees are, you know, first inactive because of the trauma and the shock of displacement, and then you can then support them in their self-reliance. Um, is that we also saw many refugees that had been in Cameroon for 10 years and that were old men and old women. And that said, you know, I've done what I could, still remaining quite poor, um, but now um, my, my kids have left me behind and I no longer have any help. Um, and so also understanding that, you know, 
it's not so much about, and, and it's interesting we brought out this assistance and job um, dichotomy. Um, it's really about understanding how, you know, livelihoods as it is here means that there will be, you know, high end lows and some refugees will be able to sustain themselves and, and access and, 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 um, and, and find livelihood opportunities early on, others may not. But what is needed is more adaptive programming that really fit with how refugees go through their displacement. Understanding that some will need help early, others will need help later. Um, and that it's not, um, you know, this assumption that they're vulnerable at first and not later is not true. And we see that in the Syrian refugee crisis, where actually five years on, you see a high level of indebtedness and where um, refugees have not just, you know, needed and, to and, use and the assistance, but more. That fits well with what Ziad was saying in terms of not really looking at refugees with one single you know, poverty lens. But I guess to do what, you know, Veronique is suggesting, particularly in the earlier phase of the crisis, you need to have the government on board. If you really want to make sure that you know, refugees can use their assets productively, uh, you need to enable them to work. And that's often the challenge. So uh, I, I, I'm surprised that we haven't heard much about the role of host governments in this so far, because they are critical in you know, enabling um, refugees to fulfill those aspirations. In fact, in fact, I noted here that I wanted to say it's, uh, we haven't tackled yet the most important point when it comes to livelihoods and dignity and self-reliance, which is the enabling environment and the legal framework. Uh, the, whole, the, the whole problem now is about rights and access. It's not about the technicalities of how to do the things. What I mentioned before is more focusing on who should be doing what and what should be the direction. But even before that, the enabling environment and the legal framework is the most important. It is the starting point because uh, only only around 47%, as I remember from the from the statistics, 47% of the host countries give refugees the right to work. So this means that more than half of the countries don't consider refugees as a productive agent, as, a, as part of the economy. So how are we going to achieve self-reliance and livelihoods in a place where there is no right, which means there is no access? And even within the 47% where the right is granted, there is no access because of other reasons. I can give many, many examples in places where the refugee has the right to open a bank account. The banking system doesn't allow the refugees to open the bank account. So uh, by law, they have the right. When they go to the bank, the, the bankers tell them that uh, this is the first time we see this case, we can't open a bank account. And this takes sometimes years to change. Uh, working with the central banks, working with the governments, with the authorities in order to to have uh, a change in practice. So uh, it is it is really a foundational discussion here that, that we can't achieve anything if there is no if there is no legal framework. But to go back to the issue of how to do the business, uh, from our experience, it's the best way is to benefit from the available services from the available systems and not to create parallel systems. Uh, sometimes we need to convince uh, that this is the way to go. Because uh, you, you see on and on 
creation of parallel systems, sometimes with good intentions, but creation of, para of parallel systems lead to many issues, and one of them uh, are related to quality issues. And I take what Tamam mentioned, the beneficiary's feedback. If beneficiary's feedback is something that the private sector uh, does, then maybe we can do it. But if, if you go as a citizen to a clinic and they don't use with you beneficiary's feedback terminology, why should we use it in a refugee context? So I fully agree with the ma'am that when you use a, a, an available system, when you use the what's functioning at least, because in some host countries, systems are not functioning, which also add complications. Uh, and also, Tamam maybe mentioned something about South, South Sudan, where, where sometimes the refugee population uh, start receiving higher standard services because it's coming from an international community. And in the host community, uh, there is lower standards. And this is where also the complications become uh, even more, more difficult. So using the functional available services lead to some mainstreaming and lead to uh, m mitigation in issues of uh, quality and issues of responsiveness and, and many other many other issues. So the reality we often get stuck in these conversations around the quality, around the curriculum actually I want to come to Lorna because I've been part of a lot of conversations around you know the, the Syrian refugee hosting countries where we have made the necessary advance and you know sort of the education provision for refugees because there's been you know this uh, paralysis around the issue of the curriculum and it'd be useful to get some reflection from you Lorna since that's pretty much what you know you've been engaging with. Sure, and um, and because I also have a tech company that works for refugees, I tie into both the livelihoods piece and the education piece. So actually, Zia, very funny, you mentioned the bank accounts. I have to send faculty with our students to open up their bank accounts because if they go alone, they, they can't open an account. So I have to send a teacher with a student to vouch for the students so we can open up bank accounts and we can wire them money monthly or else they can't pay their rent, right? So, uh, so I'm with you on that. Um, I want to mention something else, though. So in our Global Future Council at the World, at the World Economic Forum that, that Sarah and I are both in, um, we have a, a mix of private sector and humanitarian organizations and NGOs all in one. And I think that's where Ziad touched upon this earlier. There is a different need and a different way of looking at things. Also, Veronique touched upon it as well, that we have to think about this uh, crisis differently, and we can't just do. It's not. It's not business as usual. We have to bring other players into the mix. And what I have found through my work is that corporations are incredibly willing to be a part of this. They just don't know how. You know, when you're uh, orange, it's not your thing. You're based on your telco, but you want to be a part of this, but you don't know how. So, being able to first engage with those that are on the ground and understand what the needs are is incredible because now they get to be a part of the solution. We need them, they need us, it's a win-win. And we're finding that many corp many companies, another one's MasterCard, which is also another um, council member in our group, and it's incredibly active with financial inclusion and digital inclusion for refugees. And I'm partnering with them in, in many big ways. Um, and I think that's key to, to mention the private sector involvement when it comes to refugee and refugee population. Um, 
I know you want me to talk about the curriculum, but there's one more thing I wanted to say regarding livelihood. So the tech company that we're launching, and again, work permits, which Zia just mentioned, and I had marked this in exclamation marks a while ago, so I was waiting for my turn. Um, absolutely. Without having government buy-in and allowing the space and the environment for refugees to work in legally, it makes it virtually impossible for you to give them any real opportunities. Because if the permits aren't there, how can you work legally? How can you go set up an entity in a country legally because you want to work with refugees, but you don't have access to work permits? So it kind of just stops you right there, dead on your tracks. And we tried to set up Link, my tech company in Kenya, but we couldn't get the buy-in from the government because of course it's helping Somalis. And they're like, why don't you help the Kenyans first? And I'm like, well, that's not how we work. We're working with refugees. And so we then looked at Jordan um, who said, we are giving work permits to refugees. And immediately we were able to get in there and now we're launching this in Jordan. <laughs> and the, uh, just to briefly talk about Link, we're hiring 50% disadvantaged Jordanians. So these are Jordanians that also cannot find work. And we all know that, of course, when you have an influx of refugees in these countries, the hosting population absolutely does, I'm going to say suffer. I don't want to call uh, the, the refugees coming in a burden to anyone because I don't see them that way. Again, I was a refugee. I don't see my father who was a medical doctor who could not practice medicine in the U.S. as a burden. He would have been an asset if they had used him properly, but they didn't. Um, and so I, we hire 50% refugees, 50% Jordanians. And to me, that's peace building. Now we have refugees and Jordanians in the room working together on learning how to build uh, software app development programs and they graduate from this from this four-month training academy, and we get them full-time jobs. And again, for me, that job at the end is crucial because that's what's going to allow you to have that dignity and allow you to just rely on yourself. And, and really, that's what you want. You want inclusion and just belonging. That's what we all want is just to belong. Um, so the so Link is critical, and, and we're delighted that we're finally launching in, in, in Jordan. We have all our ducks in a row. Ziario and I'll, I'll catch up on that in a big way next week. Um, and going back to the to the curriculum, sorry, Sarah. No, so you know, I wear two hats. But um, going back to uh, the curriculum, yes, of course. Imagine you're a Syrian refugee. You've left Syria. Now you're in Jordan. Now you're studying their Jordanian curriculum. You're in Turkey. Now you're studying their Turkish curriculum. Then they send you to Lebanon. Now you're with the Lebanese. I mean, seriously, how many different curriculums do I have to learn to continue my education? So curriculum alone is is a huge problem. I've always said, can we just have the Syrian curriculum in all the places where refugees are? But I, I know that many of us have believed this, but I know it's incredibly complex to do this because of course the hosting government wants you to learn their curriculum. You're in their government, you're in their country. I get it, but it would be wonderful if we could allow them to just continue their own, their own curriculum that they know, which is somewhat different than the Jordanian and the Lebanese and the Turkish and the whatever else. Um, so what we what, and 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 the the last point of the of, of of curriculum I have to I have to point out the government of Argentina has given my nonprofit Blue Rose Compass a thousand scholarships for Syrian refugees to study and live in Argentina. So it's not only a thousand scholarships; they're also being given humanitarian visas, which are very similar to the Canadian uh, model, which is extraordinary. Um, which means that they, the moment they land into Argentina, they benefit from everything in Argentine benefits from. So free health care. Um, they can work day one if they speak English, probably. I mean, they're not, they don't speak Spanish yet, but even if they speak English, they can probably get a job. And of course, our thousand students will go to Argentina, 
They're going to be attending the best universities in Argentina. They can study anything they want. We're already linking them with part-time jobs from not the first year, because the first year is just immersion in Spanish, as you can, so now they have to go learn Spanish uh, for the first 15 months of Argent being in Argentina. But they'll, they'll be blended in the system. And that's what we are, of course, again, we all know that inclusion is, is, is key if, if you're allowed to integrate and be included in the system. And when they, when they grab, go ahead. I want to stop you because I want to let questions in and just come to Taman oh. for one last comment yeah, before, uh, I, before I open up because there is a lot of people that want to come into you. the discussions. Uh, I want to open to the audience. You can carry on with the audience in a second. I just have to, to dispute a little bit the point on, on the not creating parallel system. And I know that we are in the humanitarian sector is, you know, notorious for creating parallel systems. But we, we, cannot, we cannot take that on face value. The, the problem is uh, it would have been lovely if the existing systems were uh, accessible, equitable, and available for refugees, even when they are in theory. It was mentioned here that in theory things could be available, and in practice they could not be. I'll give you an example. We have a clinic in, uh, in uh, uh, Athens. This is, I'm not talking about South Sudan. We have a clinic that uh, has opened for refugees, a completely parallel system in the middle of the EU. The reason is not uh, we wanted to build a clinic in, in Athens. There is a sense of safety that is absent in accessing the uh, system in, in uh, Greece. There is uh, people who don't want to expose themselves and give their names to the government. There is a stratification that was created de facto because they brought uh, Arabic interpreters, which meant that the Afghani refugees uh, and the Kurdish refugees, in some cases, didn't have access or interpretation. They, there are multiple layers of uh, unobvious uh, hindrance to access to the system, let alone the other point. I, I struggle with the idea of, yes, we will not create a parallel system, yet the current existing system, when available, is so bad that it's, I wouldn't be comfortable with our patients being treated in it. Um, but you open that to the host community. In of course, it, in, in so almost every keep. situation that isn't a camp, it's open to the host community. That's uh, given from a, from a, you know, from an egalitarian point of view, but also from I'm not being stupid enough to upset people with each other point of view. Uh, you wouldn't be the first one. But but I mean it's it's not as easy. There is there is a, a uh, something to be sacrificed on on both sides. The other one is progression in time doesn't guarantee access and it doesn't guarantee availability. Actually, in many cases, if you look at Eastern Congo, if you look at South Sudan, uh, uh, and on, on multiple occasions, the, the uh, uh, Palestinian refugee camps in Lebanon, the fact that a refugee existed in a place for a decade or two or three doesn't mean that they have de facto more access to any service, uh, and, and doesn't mean that we can cut off something. Uh, the one point you mentioned, and I, and I know you, you, you don't support that, and that's not the intention, but like many neoliberal policies, things backfire. You, you cut people from aid so they can work, and we know how that ends up in places that has safety nets. Refugees often do not have a safety net if they fall off the grid, even in rich countries. And I think it's important to remember that just having arrived to Germany or having arrived to the UK 
there is a coping to be made. There is an, an integration. There is a learning of the system. And there is a discrimination and an, that, that is prevalent in almost any refugee host community. So it's, it's not as simple as now the services are there. We'll yeah. switch you off. Go on. Brilliant. I wish we could carry on, but we we have less than half an hour, and I know that you know people want to come into the discussion as well. So let's let's get a few questions and comments from the audience. Uh, please introduce yourself. Um, if you have any affiliation, mention that. Uh, try to be brief so we can take as many questions and comments as possible. I'll start with the audience in the room, then I'll go to the online audience. You can put questions through the chat or the Twitter feed. Um, who wants to start? Tom at the back. Can I have microphones, please? Over there. Yes. Okay. And I'll, I'll take a few in a row and we'll, we'll try and do a couple of um, rounds. Tom Newby from Care International. Um, I, uh, first, I'd just like to say that I really like Taman's point of f framing this as humanist, um, as humanitarian versus to, to humanist rather than development. I think that could, is something that very much worth exploring. And I think along the theme of what you were just saying, um, we look at the at Jordan, where there's the Jordan Compact, and there are 50,000 work permits per year, which haven't quite all been issued. And also Uganda, where there's now a huge influx, and there's a very enlightened refugee regime in, in Uganda, but with that huge influx, even that's coming under strain. So the question is whether this approach with livelihoods and jobs, um, which I, I fully support in, in principle as something to, to aim for, can ever reach the scale that we need it to reach. Um, when we, you know, in Jordan, we've got 50,000 work permits in a country where we've got up best part of a million uh, refugees. Um, and so really the, the point is actually, can we reach that scale? How might we do that? Um, what if we can't do that? And do we need to accept actually that um, when pursuing this and other approaches, that we do need to have that long-term welfare and safety net in place, um, because without that, um, it's just an unrealistic approach. So I'd like to hear thoughts on that. Yeah, very good. Thank you. Uh, gentlemen here at the front. Hi, my name's uh, Thomas Tishar. I'm a food security and livelihoods advisor with Save the Children. So I suppose my, my takeaway from listening to all four of you in different ways is that um, you're probably ahead of the curve and, and the key constraints uh, uh, outside of your own abilities and resources is to change government mindsets. Um, so, albeit there's realistic constraints in poorer countries that are receiving refugees, as Tamar mentioned, but outside of that, it's about how do you change policy and attitudes towards the way they perceive displaced peoples and refugees. Because ultimately, uh, unlike the gentleman said from CARE, that's what's going to change opportunities for those, for those people in the longer term. So I'd be curious to hear from uh, any of the four of you sort of positive deviations in, in behavior or attitudes or policy uh, from government uh, spokespeople that you speak to or engage with, as well as the type of um, advocacy you try and uh, 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 make with them? Where do you see the highest priorities in changes of policy? Thank you. Uh, the lady at the back there. 
Thank you. My name is Juliet Webster. I'm with an organisation or rather a community group called De Beauvoir Welcomes Refugees, which is a small community group in London, bringing a Syrian family into our area quite soon. And um, my question really is concerns that this sort of theme that has, I think, has been very valuable in this discussion, which is about blending. Uh, refugees into their new contexts as much as possible um, and creating opportunities for self-reliance and empowerment, all of which strikes the absolutely correct note as far as I can see. Um, but there's a, there's a tension, at least in our neighbourhood, which I just wanted to flag up and see if anyone had any thoughts about, and that is... Um, the, the, the existing community of people, many of whom are, are very lacking in incomes, resources, you know, we have quite poor, poor neighbourhoods in East London where I live and where we're bringing a family in. And we think we are going to have to manage attention, at least in our public discourse, about, uh, you know, bringing a new family in and citing them within a... a or alongside a fairly deprived community. And I just wonder if you, any of you have any thoughts about how that can be managed delicately. Thank you, very valuable. And I'll take these two at the front and then we'll, I'll come from another round. I can do three. Be brief and then I want to try and fit another round in. Yes, uh, my name is Nuha Altine. I'm from the Arab Urban Development Institute. Uh, thank you for uh, your excellent inputs. I just do have some points, maybe starting with uh, regarding the uh, the element that you've mentioned about the different how how the different refugees actually have different capacities or resilience uh, to uh, when once they move into the camps. Don't you see that we need to shift from I would say social or economic resilience into physical resilience? Because again, the livelihoods that are built, when it's actually exposed to risks, because most of those refugees are their camps or the places where they are hosting within the city itself will be disaster prone areas and places that are flooded or cycling prone uh, places. So physical resilience, can't we really look into uh, transforming that aid from the humanitarian aid agencies from food and shelter into how the buildings look like, where is it located and how is it going to be stable and also data, sharing data between the different agencies because when it comes into human losses I think the Sindai framework, the SDGs have emphasised a lot on the loss of data and how are we going to exchange this between the different agencies. Thank you. Thank you. If you pass the microphone to the back. Yeah, Abdi Musa from Friends of the Home Foundation. Being a refugee myself in Kenya, fled from Somalia in 1991. I know what the experience is like, and thank you very much, and I'm very, very proud to be here today. Now, I just want to ask you and say, it, what is the latest situation in the Dab refugee camp? Are they actually closing it? If yes, where are these people going back to? as we know what is happening in Mogadishu and Somalia every day. Thank you very much. Thanks. And finally, the lady here at the front. I'll, I'll come for another one. Thank you. Good afternoon. My name is Alexandra Barrandes from the Development Pathways. I'm a senior policy specialist there. I wanted to ask a question uh, both to Ziad and, and I suppose also Veronique in, in terms of their uh, experience, because you mentioned Ziad something about uh, need for refugees having poverty scales or classifications for poverty and different levels of poverty. And Veronique also mentioned the issue of how depending on 
first uh, arrivals and then 10 years back, there might be different as in terms of assets and vulnerabilities. So I wanted to know the experience in terms of doing that kind of assessment in field. Thank you. Thanks. Do you want to start with that? Um, start with, with the last question? No, we'll take more, but I think let's take these ones and then the, try and fit in another quick round. Um, I think there is plenty more questions. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, they're very interesting. Um, and I try to be brief to, to let everybody talk. But I think, um, can we scale up on the livelihoods? Um, that's an issue. And I think it's very interesting to see the Uganda model and how it's reacting to a very large movement of refugees. Um, you know, Uganda being one of those countries that everybody has been talking about, how, you know, they um, have a great refugee policy framework. They're um, intentionally trying to integrate refugee, to support social integration, to support economic integration and all of this. And yet now with hundreds of thousands of South Sudanese coming in, this is crumbling. Um, and I think it's not about doing one or the other. I think it's about understanding the situation, but not preconceiving livelihoods as being an afterthought, as being the next step, but understanding that refugees will work from day one, maybe not from day one, but they will work quite quickly um, as, as they're moved. But also, you're right, and I think it's not just about you know livelihood as an opposition to long-term welfare and safety net. It's about having the two together, um, and 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 not thinking about it as being oh we first assist and then there's self-reliance, but understanding that like with everybody else, this will be um, people will come in and out of needing a safety net and not. And I think that is very important. Uh, and if you look at the executive summary, we, we've developed nine principles of what we think are important to integrate in a long-term livelihood strategy. And one of them is a social safety net and understanding how that can be integrated to any kind of livelihood strategy. Um, what, what changes um, the government policy? Well, first I want to say, Yes, the, 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 the national policy framework is one of the most, if not the most significant factor and element that will shape refugee livelihoods. It um, shapes not only what refugees are allowed to do or not and whether they're allowed to work or not, but it also um, shapes what um, organizations and aid agencies are allowed to do or not. Um, but I think um, two things I would mention here. One is to understand how um, lower-level governments interpret this policy framework and implement it. Um, and there's been some great work around uh, the role of municipalities in the Syrian refugee crisis, and I think this is very, very interesting. The second, um, while I can be quite critical of the Jordan Compact, and, and if you want to look online, we have a, um, a, a one, the, one of the case studies that, that talks about some of the critique of the Jordan Compact. I think one of the things that we learned from the Jordan Compact is if you have the right donor incentives using trade and diplomacy and, and political will, um, you can shift government policy. And, and I think that's important to take this forward. I don't think the Jordan Compact was quite there. I think we need to be quite critical of how we should reuse that model. But it shows that when there's a political will between diplomacy and trade and financing and funding, we can shift things. And I think that, that we need to take forward. And the last thing I, I will say, and I'm sorry I'm, I may not answer all the questions, but also that um, in integrating the perspective of refugees, we need to understand how refugees themselves experience the national framework. It was very interesting in Malaysia that has a very restrictive um, refugee policy, especially for Rohingya refugees that are not even recognized, not even, uh, they have you know, less of a status even as illegal migrants, if you want, um, that they are finding ways to work. They are finding ways to sustain themselves. Um, and from this very restrictive, 
um, policy that aid agencies endorse in Malaysia and therefore say we cannot do any livelihood support for refugees, we actually found refugees that told us, well, it's more of an unwritten turning a blind eye policy and we are able to find opportunities to work. So understanding how their strategies to manage that landscape um, you know, what, what they do is very critical to then supporting their livelihoods rather than having this stagnant, um, you know, formal understanding of the policy framework. Thanks. Yeah, there were a couple of questions directed to you, and I think one in particular asking about these positive deviations <laughs> from Thomas. You know, where, where, where are we seeing these positive examples? So where is the UNHCR being most effective in this advocacy? And perhaps also, you know, MSF and, and Lorna can reflect on that and other questions. I will try to answer if some of the, of the other questions also. Yeah, so on the, on the question related to Jordan Compact and the 50,000 uh, work permits and what happened after that, it failed, it didn't fail. Actually, refugees uh, were offered some jobs uh, that they, they didn't accept uh, because the jobs were not relevant to what they want. And so, so there is a whole... Get yeah, there. yeah. there's a whole experience in what's happening in Jordan Compact, but we need to look at, to look at it from the angle of, of also of learning, because what used to happen before Jordan Compact and before the Syria crisis, what used to happen, refugees flee, they are locked in a camp or even in urban settings, no discussions around livelihoods happen. <coughs> this, is, this was the status quo. Uh, humanitarian organi organizations come in and start organizing vocational training after vocational training. I'm sure those who work in humanitarian organizations know very much what I'm saying, because I, I was part of it. We, we are, so the critic is not for, for a specific organization, it's for the community. So vocational training after vocational training for years and years, to, to the extent that we, we graduate thousands of haircutters and thousands of, 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 of tailors and we distribute sewing machines so and we distribute, chicken. yeah. So this was the model. Now, there is an acknowledgement that this is not working. And I hope everybody acknowledged that because I'm not sure yet. But so we need to do market oriented. We need to look at the markets. We need to, do, to look at the economy. We need to, okay. Global compact was a learning. Whether it's working or not, it should not be pointing fingers because those who tried to make Jordan Compact work, they were, they were having a theory that we come to the government of Jordan with an incentive. So donors and private sector and the international community will inject money in the country in a condition that the labor market will be open for refugees. It was a deal. So the deal theory has a good intention, then whether it works or not, there are a lot of details and I think everybody is learning, including governments, international community, and uh, everyone is learning. So this is how, how I look at the, at the Jordan, Jordan Compact. Reaching scale, definitely it's not going to happen in the vocational training model. So we know that. We were reaching scale, our indicator for success was number of people trained. And this means nothing. It means nothing, actually. So the scale in terms of really uh, economic inclusion, whether it could be uh, uh, reached or not, it's a question that is not answered yet. And this is what we are trying to do. The Jordan Compact was, uh, was like a hope. 
Yeah, and everybody was looking at, at, at Jordan Compact as a hope. But I think the CRRF and the Global Compact now is another opportunity to, to test the approach of economic inclusion and the scale of it. And the, the work with the World Bank, actually, that we are doing also, is one of the areas that could be promising because the World Bank works on macroeconomy. And the World Bank, the World Bank can work with governments in order to provide financial support to specific sectors that can absorb refugees. And this is where the scale could be, could be uh, reached. Uh, so I, I partially answered the question about changing policies. In my opinion, changing policies could be done in two different levels, advocacy definitely, but could be done in the type of uh, uh, New York Declaration thing, uh, the, the Global Compact, the General Assembly, so this type of diplomacy. And you have the other type, which is the incentive-based uh, advocacy. And this takes me to the actually to the question about tension between refugees and host communities. I want to give an example of a company without mentioning names, because I'm, I'm going to be fired if I mention the name. <laughs> but the company who committed publicly to hire a big number of refugees. And then the, the next day, they started facing boycott. And they came to us and they said, have you witnessed something like that before? Now we are, we are willing to, to, to do good, and now we have a boycott campaign, campaign against us. And this is going to happen always, because you cannot eliminate xenophobia from the world. You can reduce it, but it's going to always be there. And you see the political situation in the world now. I'm not sure that we are going towards more inclusive and more tolerant world. We should work for it. So in order to avoid these issues, I think any program targeting refugees should not be labeled like that. The programs should be inclusive. So to, to solve the problem of exclusion for refugees, we should not be exclusive. We should be inclusive. So I think always, uh, if you want to do poverty alleviation, it should be area-based. And this is what we are now discussing with some technical partners. So area-based approaches. So you work on poverty in neighborhood X. You chose neighborhood X because you know that a lot of refugees are living there and you want to do something for them. But you work with everybody, with the poor in this neighborhood. So this is, this is the approach. Do we have like great success stories that prove that this works? I'm not sure yet. But I think theoretically, this is how we should move uh, to do the thing. And finally, on the poverty uh, analysis, um, the poverty analysis, this, this is a new area also that started after Syria crisis, to be fair. Again, the humanitarian organization used to use a lot the vulnerability language. And we used to have like a traditional list of vulnerability. Uh, also, those who used to, who used to work in, uh, in humanitarian organizations know what I mean. Uh, so uh, single mother, uh, disabled people. So it's a status-based uh, uh, vulnerability. And all the assistance programs, all the, the development programs that we used to be uh, 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 implemented by humanitarian organizations used to use this vulnerability scale. The poverty analysis area started actually with the Syria crisis where the World Bank jumped in and helped in Jordan, Lebanon, Egypt uh, to do uh, a different type, which is more multidimensional, uh, to take into consideration vulnerability, but also uh, uh, econometrics and, and poverty. 
Uh, this is where in Lebanon, for example, they did the Vasir, and after that, they, they used the proxy means uh, testing, and then now they are doing the desk formula. It's all about uh, econometrics and vulnerability. It's new, but the problem, it's like other things, how to reach scale. How can we assess the 65 million people in the world who are refugees in a poverty lens? Uh, we managed to assess uh, poverty in a couple of countries, but it's not everywhere. In Malawi, uh, in, uh, I don't know, in uh, South Sudan, in, in Khartoum, in all these operations, are we using poverty analysis? Not yet. Maybe I gave the example of Malawi. Actually, we just finished a poverty analysis now in Malawi, which was not expected. Is Tadab closing yes or no? Just one more. Uh, yeah, so this question. One more, yes or no? Uh, yeah, I can't give yes or no. Right. I can't. I don't, I, then I don't, we'll have a conversation after Honestly, I, I don't to. know, but I can yeah. offline be in touch with you and give you what, what I can get from the office uh, information. Yeah, so I know there are a lot more questions. So, Tamam and Lorna, hold your answers to this round, then I'll come to you uh, uh, to start with the last round. Indulge me. For, we'll go over for 10 minutes, um, but you know, then we give an opportunity. I, can, I see a lot of colleagues who are desperate to come in. And of course, those who need to leave, you know, feel free. Uh, there, is, there is wine for those who drink out there afterwards. Nick has an answer for the dab. Oh, right. OK, yes. perfect. Sorry, so I'm based in Kenya. The dab in, so my name's Nick, we soon I'm with UNICEF. So in February, the Kenyan court ruled that it is unlawful to close the dab. So uh, that's where we are. Perfect. <laughs> Excellent. And again, you can chat afterwards for more details. Uh, burning questions. Um, who wants to come in? Please be brief. Lady at the front. Well, thank you very much for your presentation, all of you. Um, in your presentations, you entertain the consideration. Can you introduce yourself, please. Yeah. Can you hear me? Can you introduce yourself? Oh, forgive me. Uh, Lul Sayum from the International Center for Eritrean Refugees and Asylum Seekers. And if I may say, uh, Eritrean, Eritrea is producing the highest number uh, of refugees. And in the UK, in 2015, the number of Eritrean refugees is higher than that of the uh, Syrians. But I would like to park that one and come straight to my question. Um, you raised the fact that there is consideration of changing policies, attitudes, and uh, approaching governments. Uh, I was wondering how much consideration there is in that um, refugees themselves should be part of the conversation. It looks as if talking about me without me. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so, yes, gentlemen at the back, and the lady there, and then we'll come for one final comment. Yeah, hi, uh, my name is Sten. I work with uh, Save the Children as a risk advisor. <clears throat> I have one question. I'm <clears throat> working a bit on the Uganda, Uganda context, and I have one question, and this is really, don't, don't take it bad. I mean, uh, what I'm going to say is, if we see what happened a little bit in Europe related to refugees, would a successful approach <coughs> also be vulnerable to... Uh, criticisms or political uh, reflections that it creates a suction effect like like a, a successful approach both for the refugees as for the host uh, country and would that potentially be um, 
could there be a backlash? I mean, I hope not, obviously. Sorry, sorry I don't understand the question. So if Uganda has a very progressive refugee approach and it allows for uh, access to education, to certain levels of social protection, to employment, to free travel, to travel documents and everything, which is what we laud and what we encourage, um, would it be possible that due to certain circumstances this would become under a kind of political fire and might backlash and might collapse and might inspire other governments not to go in that direction? It's, it's a question of, how you, in my language we say, uh, it's like, oh, it's devil's advocate. That's what it, uh, <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Thank you. And finally, the lady at the back here. My name is Leila and I work at the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom. And my question is to Ziad. Um, since the UNHCR is not only a humanitarian organization, you're, or, you're also an, inter, an intergovernmental agency with a lot of legal obligations and legal uh, role. And that role hasn't been done very well in the Syria crisis and along the recent refugee crisis. We have seen very, very little um, about uh, ensuring safe passages. Uh, the whole thing about the refugee crisis across Europe has been a shame. Um, in the few uh, gains that has been done around Syria, including 50,000 um, uh, work work permits that has been almost uh, almost uh, strictly granted to domestic workers, Syrian female domestic workers, who did not want to do that, but that's the only opportunity. And it's being presented as a solution to refugees. And the uh, situation in Turkey where people, where this um, uh, gentleman agreement that you uh, spoke about, uh, Veronique, Veronique, has ended up in the heads of organizations that are providing almost all the services to Syrians being detained now in Gaziantep. UNHCR haven't done a lot about this. Don't you think it's time to reconsider all the funds that you're taking from states who think that they're giving this money for the well-being of refugees and, and giving the space to other international organizations who are actually making a difference with far less resources? Thanks. I'll let you think about that. Laura, let me come <laughs> to you um, to comment on the questions that have been asked in this round and any from the previous round that you also want to um, add any reflections to. There's too many notes. I don't even know where to start. Um, um, I want to mention something about the DAB. I realize, I heard what he just said, but um, thousands of Somalis have been sent, I can't even say back to Somalia, because they were born in Kenya. The majority of the students I've taken out of the DAB in their you know, 18, 19, 20 years old, they were born in the DAB, right? They're born in Kenya. But now they, and, and their families have been pushed to Somalia where there's absolutely nothing there for them. There's no infrastructure, no future, nothing. They're being sent with $250 in busloads. I have photos of these buses. Um, it has stopped, but for a long time this was ongoing and it was pretty horrific. I actually lost three of my students. It took me months to find them again because their cell phones were taken anyhow. So it's, it's not a pretty situation. I'm glad it's now paused, but it's, um, there's been a lot of damage there. And I, um, I, I, want, I hope that, that things improve with the Somalis that have been um, pushed to a country that they've never seen uh, and many have never known. But anyhow, sorry, I'm very passionate about it because I, have a, I started in the DAB and we still have a lot of families there completely affected directly by, by what's happened in Kenya. Um, I want to go back to the skill gaps. You know, we talk about um, jobs and integration and, oh, they're taking my job. There, when I go to any conference, I don't care, and I used to be in finance for, for 18 years, 
And every World Bank conference, IDP conference, the big thing you hear is skill gaps, skill gaps. There are tons of skill ga gaps in all these countries. But there's no real matching of skill gaps with what, let's say, the refugee population has. And I know there are some entities trying to do some matchings. I, I haven't seen like a proper scaling of this, but I think, of course, that would be, that kind of sounds uh, obvious to me. Um, when you have government saying we have skill gaps in these industries, and here you have an incredible vast population of refugees sitting idle in many of these countries, why not hire them? And of course, then you go into the work permits and having the proper documentation, which goes into something else that someone asked there about proper documentations and passports and, and IDs. You don't want undocumented people in your country. Look at what's happening here in the US. I mean, I'm horrified by what this administration is doing. And, I, and, it, and it's, you know, what you absolutely want are people that have proper documentations, that they feel safe in the country they're in, that they feel there are rights and they're, they're secure and they're safe and they can prosper and do something legally. You don't want to be, no one wants to be working illegally. It's just that the environment doesn't support them to do things legally. So they, you survive. Um, but of course, so proper documentation, proper passports, proper IDs, of course, is, is the way to go. Um, and again, this skill gap thing is so, I mean, again, it's so obvious. And every meeting I go to, every big conference I go to, all these government people complaining about skill gaps. And here we have this population. So um, we are speaking to one government in the, in, in the EU that's approached me to hire our graduates for LINK. And I'm talking to the employment agency of this country, of this government. So it, and, it's, and it's one of the big governments in, in Europe. And we're delighted. And they've said, Lorna, we have so many skill gaps in these specific skills, and you're training them in tech. Can we find a way? And I said, absolutely. So, I mean, this is great that our first client may be a, a government and a federal employment agency. But this is like, I mean, to me, this is obvious. You have gaps. We can fill them. All we need is to then move a resettled. They'll have to be resettled to these countries, or they'll have to go with different work permits. The point of, is to, for them to go legally into the work environment and be able to prosper. But the, connecting that link, I think, is important. And there is, I, I, I keep saying it, the, the want is there from governments and corporations. It's finding each other. I think that is, uh, I'm not going to say a challenge because I'm seeing it happen. I think it's just sort of more of a new conversation we're having. And I'm, I'm delighted to see it happen. Um, so I, I can just hope that more, more come along. Um, I don't know what other, I mean, I wrote a ton of uh, things about other questions here. Um, the integration piece with the hosting community. So this is big with what we're doing with LINK. This is why we're hiring 50% refugees, 50% Jordanians. It wasn't because the Jordanian government told me to do this. It was because we thought it was important. The hosting community gets, has an opportunity to meet refugees, interact with refugees, and get to know each other. Because just because they're in your country doesn't mean you're going to interact with them. And I think once you interact with someone that you don't understand and you become friends with this person, guess what? You're going to like this person. They're no longer this foreign kind of, you know, they're no longer this alien that's come in and taking things. They're going to be your buddy. They're going to be your friend. And that, to me, is the peace-building um, aspect of it, you know? Thank you, Laura. Let me come to Tamam. There were yes, also some um, questions here. I, I, uh, as a medical provider, I, I cannot answer your question, Tom. On, it obviously isn't going to scale. My worry here is that if we say, well, let's experiment. 
by incentivizing a whole country so maybe they get people to work. First, I don't understand the politics behind it. Is it trying to keep Syrians in Jordan so they wouldn't come to Europe? Or is it actually a genuine effort? Second, what I know for a fact is that money spent on incentivizing Jordan that might or might not work is money not spent on something else. There's an opportunity cost to adventurism in, in humanitarian aid. I don't know if he can afford it. Uh, the the <coughs> other thing is, um, uh, Juliette, I wish, I wish I could answer you beyond big statements and you know policy statements. Uh, in our experience, it, it works. You're dealing with a one family, and, and we have dealt sometimes with a few and with many. It, it, it works until people become friends. It works with, with finding a benefit for the community. A, even if it's not a, a burden, you know, just telling people this is not a burden isn't enough. A way of finding benefit to the people who are suffering poverty and want uh, as well by that program is probably difficult, but it's probably worth it. If, if, uh, and that's what we do on, on scale, and it usually works. And one would hope to believe that poor people you know, understand each other and, and can be in solidarity better than the rich. But Noha, uh, the, the data is open. Uh, in MSF, for example, and this is a trend. We have put a an, an data sharing policy that make our data completely open, respecting only the, um, uh, you know, the autonomy, the uh, uh, privacy of our patients. So anyone who is going to use it for a non-profit purpose is welcome to ask for that, and we think everybody should do the same, because this is not our data. This is the patient's data and should be available for others who would. The conditions are for it to benefit them and for it to be not used for profit. Um, Abdi, I, I don't know if they're close to that or not. What I know is that they have pushed people by between the announcing to close it and it not having closed, they've pushed potentially thousands of people to go and seek voluntary repatriation, which means that they didn't kick them by police and guns, they nearly forced them out of the dab because they, were, because they offered them a package of, uh, of voluntary return. So people thought if we're going to be kicked out by the police, we might as well go out, and many people did. And I regret that this is not a choice. What is called voluntary repatriation has never been a choice that people were free to make. Um, I, 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 Alexandra, I want to say something. Uh, it scares the hell out of me because refugees are stigmatized as it is. The shade of their color, the shade of their accent, everything stigmatizes them. To add layers of poverty classification is something that will magnificently backfire. You know, then we become a refugee degree one poverty versus a refugee degree four poverty, as if they don't have enough stuff to worry about being called it. And I know that, you know, potentially on an economic Excel sheet, it looks fine. But in the real world, everything that could stigmatize people does stigmatize people. And I, I don't know if a poverty analysis, which sounds, you know, it reminds me of Oliver Twist, the word they call him in the restaurant. It was a poverty stigmatization that still exists today in every community. And I don't know if we want to add that. Um, 
last couple of words. Sulol, I, I, I thank you for speaking out because, you know, today, uh, us Syrians are the, the uh, flavor of the day. We will be forgotten in a few months or years, just as happened in Eritrea. And unless there is a real solidarity and a real identification with each other, uh, uh, refugees cannot be allowed to segregate and start becoming uh, a problem to each other. And, and we help with that because now the donors give us money to go for Syrian refugees, so fine. And the Eritreans are not on CNN. It's partially everybody's responsibility to not allow um, issues that aren't a CNN event to go away from, from memory. Uh, and and the last word to Sten, please don't use the fascists' arguments. On, not, not, it's not even funny when it's a devil's advocate argument. People are dying. It's not a choice they make lightly. If you put, if you give them a, a one-bedroom apartment in an estate council here, it's not going to flood Europe with refugees. I, it's, we get quoted on things that we say right, wrongly. And I, I really fear that if we start allowing ourselves, and you're not the first one in our sector to say that. Many people say, it's none of my business. I am a humanitarian actor, and I will act in the benefit of people in need, wherever they are, whatever they are. They, we have enough people making the, the, those arguments for us to worry about them. I, I would worry about helping the people we want to serve and not provoking arguments that might be actually harmful, even for the sake, I don't know, even for the but sake We have to engage argument. in those arguments because we they're live in the policy debates than, out there. We have to argue them rather than echo them. But, yeah. but it, they're important arguments. We need to close. I just want one minute to reply to uh, Leila, the question that she put yeah. straight to UNHCR. Yes, within the one minute, uh, let me tackle other other issues also because on the within the one minute on the poverty analysis, tamam, uh, it's always good to identify uh, weaknesses and challenges, but there is no targeting if there is no poverty analysis, and we are all being criticized by beneficiaries, by refugees, by persons of concern, for wrongly targeting. So giving the assistance to the right people. Uh, in some places, the assistance was given to the wrong people because there is no poverty analysis. So there is a, there is a, there is a purpose for it. On the, on the Uganda example, uh, I would say a country like Uganda should be supported by the international community and by donors in order to survive uh, its own challenges. And definitely, the challenges are not related to the refugees. Uganda has development challenges. Still, they have an open attitude, so they should be supported, Uganda and others also. On the, on the question related or on the statement related to the, uh, to the funds, uh, you rightly said that UNHCR has a monitoring role for the 51 Convention. And we are issuing our monitoring uh, uh, reports in, in the governing body uh, structure that we have, which is the standing committee and the executive uh, committee in a regular way. So uh, now it's the standing committee uh, cycle. Uh, as we speak, uh, member states come to UNHCR to the Palais des Nations in Geneva, and we meet with them, and we issue our reports on regional situations, on sectoral situations. And I refer you to the statement of the director of Europe Bureau in the last standing committee a few weeks ago uh, on 
Europe situation because you, you brought up the ensuring safe passages. I was in the standing committee. I was listening to this person, the director of Europe Bureau, and I was even surprised with all my UN experience. I was surprised that this statement is coming from a UN uh, diplomat. Uh, I think I think we are being as much as we can uh, bold, clear on critics related to the 51 Convention and other issues, but still we are not uh, an authority in the world. We are a monitoring uh, uh, body uh, mandated by the UN General Assembly to issue uh, observations and to, 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 to give directions, but we can't open ourselves safe passages. I mean, we are... Yeah, I'm coming to the second point, which is so. I'm coming to the second point, which is the, the fund that that you that you. Uh, so, my reaction, my first reaction, definitely, definitely, we should agree that more funds should be given to others, and this is the whole concept of comprehensive refugee response framework and global compact. The content of it, when it's going to be published, it's going to be about. Everybody should be responsible because one agency cannot do everything. My second reaction on, on this point is actually most of the money that we receive from donors is channeled to partners, and we never do things alone. So you might see a lot of uh, even small agencies doing work on the ground uh, that are completely funded by UNHCR in many places, but it's not, it's not about funding. So let's, let's just conclude this point. It's not about funding. It's about mandate and roles. <coughs> UNHCR role uh, sometimes uh, could be given uh, a little bit, could be stretched by activists and, uh, and some community uh, uh, NGOs because they are, th there are very high expectations. Uh, so everybody is expecting UNHCR to solve the refugee problem in the world. However, there are mandates and there are capacities and I think it is even beyond mandate. It's about division of labor. So uh, sometimes we fully support a community activism group to go and say what should be said. And we play our role in the General Assembly and in the Standing Committee and in the Executive Committee. I think we cannot play the role of the activists. It's like activists cannot play our role. So it's a division of labor. It's not about funding. And uh, we definitely Thank fully you, agree more we, we about more, more I think funding. It's fair to say they work better you. in some countries than, than in others. And let's hope that the CLRF really opens the space for a, a, a a stronger collaborations, you know, everywhere. Uh, thank you. You've been patient. I know we've gone over time. This is clearly a live discussion with a lot of interest. Um, for those who are staying, there is there are wine in Nibbles. So for those who are not fasting and drink wine, there is uh, wine in Nibbles next door. Uh, thank you so much. Please join me in thanking the panelists. It's been a really interesting, useful, passionate discussion. Thank you for listening. For more ODI live event podcasts, find us on SoundCloud or subscribe to the Overseas Development Institute podcasts via iTunes. Thank you.